Um, uh, one day, Peter and John went to the temple at three o'clock in the afternoon, the hour for prayer. There at the beautiful gate, as it was called, was a man who had been lame all his life. Every day he was carried to the gate to beg for money from the people who were going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John going in, he begged them to give something. They looked straight at him and Peter said, look at us. So he, took, he looked at him them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said to him, I have no money at all, but I give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I order you to get up and walk. Then he took him by his right hand and helped him up. At once the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped up, stood on his feet and started walking around. Then he went into the temple with them, walking and jumping and praising God. The people there saw him walking and praising God, and when they recognized him as the beggar who had sat at the beautiful gate, they were all surprised and amazed at what had happened to him. I just leave that there. Yeah. Just to make sure it's safe. So, from time to time, I am compelled to venture into the city. Mostly, I'm drawn by the lure of bookstores, new and secondhand, which is a dangerous thing for me because it's not as if my house is nobody full of books stacked everywhere. And Auckland City has, in, in recent years, seemingly gained a number of homeless people and beggars. You find them around the waterfront, and you find them clustered around parts of Queen Street. I mean, they've always been homeless in the CBD, but for some reason they seem to be more noticeable these days. And I, I don't know that there were quite so many begging uh, in times past, certainly not when I used to be at university. At the lower end of Queen Street, uh, I'm, I'm walking on my path to one of my favourite bookshops, and I'm just struck by the stark contrast between two different types of people, two different worlds, almost. Because right there, you, you've got the Louis Vuitton shop, and all their patrons are calmly queuing outside, dressed in their immaculate designer clothes waiting their turn to go inside and buy some handbag that's worth more than my car. <laughs> Maybe worth more than all of our cars. And, and there, just a few metres away, there's a man sitting on the, the cold pavement, dressed in worn, threadbare clothing, hunched over the cup in front of him. The greatest wealth and the least wealth, so close, and yet never to mix. And rightly or wrongly, I've taken to carrying a collection of gold coins in my pocket whenever I'm in the city, so that if I'm, if I'm passing one of these people, I've, I've got something I can, I can just hand to them. And, and I'll usually sort of 
give them a smile and a nod, just an acknowledgement. And they've always, so far, you know, said thanks or cheers, mate, or whatever, in return. And you sort of wonder, maybe just the fact that another human being acknowledged their existence counted for something. And there's always that internal conflict, you know, that think, thinking that, well, I'd, I'd like to think that I'm doing this out, out of compassion because I want to recognize the humanity of another person in some small way. But maybe, maybe it's just tokenism, and I'm just trying to ease a sense of collective guilt in a way that won't cost me too much. Certainly, I'm, I'm inwardly struggling to overcome my conditioned fear and its suspicion of the other, the outsider. I, I, know, I know what people say, you know, they're, they're just going to spend it on booze and drugs and they may be right, but it might also be how they'll eat today. And I know they're just, they're just scamming, it's, it's tax-free dollars and we've already got a welfare system, but then again, I've been unemployed and I know how imperfect and often dehumanising our welfare system can be. And I think ultimately, I'm not responsible for what someone else does with what I give. That's between them and God. I'm only responsible for how I respond. Let's just pray quickly. Dear Father, we uh, gather here and, and please be with us as we venture into the third chapter of, of Acts tonight. Be with us as we consider beggars, healing, and what that could have to do with refreshing. Amen. Well, you see, when we pick up our story tonight, Peter and John are on their way to the temple in Jerusalem, and they encounter a man who is begging. This man has a, a physical disability. He's lame. He's like totally lame. Hey, you know I hate to make a lame joke there somewhere, right? And we don't know a lot about him. We don't have a name. Chapter 4 in Acts does tell us that he's over 40 and he had this condition for all of his life. And Luke specifies the problem, being in his feet and his ankles. So, so maybe there's a deformity. Maybe it's something like club foot, perhaps. And this man, he, he exists in what I can only describe as a small world. He's brought to the spot every day so he can beg, and there he remains, unable to engage in the, the lives of the people who bustle past him, unable to take a bathroom break. Because really, how does that work? Maybe I shouldn't go there. He's unable to pursue any other activity or to make a name for himself in any other way. He has no profession, no creative endeavour. He wasn't schooled in his father's profession the way that most boys would have been as they came of age. He's likely never married. I mean, not only did his disability go against him in terms of suitable partners, but his income from begging is probably nowhere near enough to afford a bride price. His whole human potential is focused down into this one simple descriptor. The lame guy who begs. He doesn't even have a name in the story. He's just the lame guy. 
and he's outside the temple, which in Jewish society is such a vital part of the community. He's practically outside society. He's on the outside. He's on the edge. And yet, there is a sense, perhaps, it is also comfortable. It's all he's known. He's born with a disability that prevented him from engaging in a normal life, and begging is his life. And after more than 40 years, it has become his normal, his day-to-day existence, his identity. He's owned the identity that society has given him. And to his credit, he's he's smart enough to to maximise his gains, to, to make the best of a bad situation. You see, sitting outside the temple gate is prime territory for a beggar because the giving of alms, uh, money, not body parts, um, to the poor and needy is regarded as, as a righteous act. So sitting there right by the temple doorway when people have to pass by you in order to go in to do their prayers and their offerings, that's got to be good for business if you're a beggar. But for all of that... It's still a small life, a life lived outside of the worshipping community. And in 1967, there was a series of frankly horrible experiments performed on dogs. There's always dogs. I love dogs. And in this experiment, they were caged and they had electric shocks coming through from the floor. And while one group of the dogs had a lever they could push to stop the shock... The other group did not. They had no way to prevent the shock from happening and no way to escape from them. They they miserably endured a painful reality that they had absolutely no control over. And then later, when they were placed in a second cage, where, where they had a safe area they could retreat to to avoid the shock, that second group of dogs made no attempt to move. They remained on the shock-generating floor, whimpering quietly, because they had learned that nothing they could do would prevent their suffering. And so there's still no point in trying, even when the situation changed and there was a way out. They call this phenomenon learned helplessness, and it can develop in people too. Being repeated failures can lead to a person to stop trying, believing that failure is inevitable. People who are facing ageing, people in poverty, people who experience high levels of social anxiety, all can develop forms of this condition. Being in any situation where you have no control or agency, it has a strongly depressive effect on the human psyche. And we feel that we are unable to affect any real change in our situation, so our world starts to contract, becoming smaller, as we become increasingly isolated. And I wonder if something similar had happened with our lame guy. So now you have Peter and John who come along and they encounter this man, and he's not looking for a healing. And indeed, if the thought of healing had ever crossed his mind, 40 years of the virtual shock cage that was his life has long ago removed any trace of such fantasies. So he calls out for money. A simple, practical expedient that keeps him going. 
it's just a quick fix that will get them through today. But God has plans for more than just getting through today. And his world is not going to stay small. Peter looks the man in the eye, it says. And this is important, because usually when you're passing someone and you really don't want to acknowledge them, you do your best to avoid eye contact. Because if you make eye contact, you cannot continue to deny somebody's existence. Eye contact unequivocally says, I see you. If you make eye contact, it becomes your responsibility to do something. Peter sees him. He makes it his responsibility. And the man is still thinking in terms of his, his small but familiar world. So he thinks that he's going to receive something, but he has no idea what he's going to receive. And then Peter's like, Psych, I don't have any money. But how about this? And he commands the man in the name, which means in the authority and the power of, of Jesus, of Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he takes the man's hand and lifts him up. And in that moment, his feet and his ankles are restored and he stands. And what's the first thing he does? He goes into the temple. He could not previously do this. I mean, he wasn't specifically prevented by the law, unless he wished to become a priest, in which case that was forbidden to anybody with any kind of physical impairment. It was just he couldn't get himself in there. Whoever it was that brought him there every day, they evidently saw their duty ending at leaving him at the gate. And once he's healed, his world just got bigger. Not only has his ability changed, but so does his location. He entered the temple. He's restored to relationship with his community and essentially with God because the temple life was so central to how people related to God in this culture. And there's the other aspect, of course, that at that time any kind of physical defect or, or condition tended to be seen as some kind of judgment from God. And so him walking ably back into the temple would have been seen as a proof of divine restoration as well. And this healing story is very much like some other ones that are found in other parts of Luke's writing, including the gospel that bears his name. See, Luke, Luke 5 has Jesus hearing, healing a paralyzed man just after the calling of his first disciples. Here, we see Peter healing a lame man just after the first converts have come during Pentecost at the speech there in Acts chapter 2. And there's also a parallel with Paul healing another lame man in Acts 14, which is the first miraculous event attributed to Paul. And this repetition of similar events in the writing, it demonstrates a continuity of power to show that the power that Jesus wielded in his life has not gone away with him. Instead, it is now acting through other agents who are working in his name. See, it's likely that after Jesus' arrest and death, that quite a few people who had known of him or encountered him at some point probably would have figured that well, what he was doing, he'd died with him. And this says otherwise. See, instead of being a one-off, one-man event that ended on a cross, 
now it's looking like this Jesus guy was actually patient zero of a whole new epidemic that's about to spread powerfully throughout the world. Now, Peter, meanwhile, he hasn't come here expecting to address a crowd or draw attention to himself. He's just come along for the afternoon service, as it were. And he ends up precipitating the healing of this guy out of a moment of compassion. And then the guy gets up and runs into the temple. And now there's a crowd. And, oh, dear, they're looking at me. Quickly, he has to read the room. And he has to say something before things get out of hand. And he does, with the Spirit's help. And this is a big change from the guy who, who couldn't even admit to knowing Jesus, probably a mere few months earlier. And so he addresses the crowd, and what he says is, why does this surprise you? Which, if he was English, he would probably say along the lines of, I, I get this is a somewhat disturbing and astonishing turn of events, but let me explain. <laughs> See, people is, Peter is quick to redirect people's focus, because uh, naturally they are astonished. Um, here's this guy that they've known for years simply as the lame dude who always sits over there and now he's running around and jumping and praising God in the middle of the temple and what's up with that and Peter can't let the crowd think that he is personally responsible for this not, not just because he's a humble kind of guy which he is but uh, there's also the reality that if he were thought to be using magic right outside the temple uh, that wouldn't go well, you know? That kind of thing's going to get you stoned, and I don't mean in a good way. <laughs> so Peter opens by basically saying, hey, look, it's not me that's doing this by my power. It's actually the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob, i.e., it's the God of our Hebrew ancestors who's at work here. And then he adds that this God that they are familiar with, that they have served for generations, this God has now glorified Jesus, and it is in his name that the healing took place. Now, this address is very similar to the one that we saw in Acts chapter 2 when Peter addressed the crowd at Pentecost. And in both cases, Peter mentions that they are responsible, at least in part, for Jesus' death. Because, as we said, that's always an excellent evangelism technique. Accuse your audience of murder. Although in this version, he has a bit more tact. And he adds in the motif of them perhaps having acted in ignorance. Because if you're going to accuse someone of murder, then at least soften the blow by suggesting that they're probably ignorant as well. <laughs> but the two messages are not exactly identical, because you could probably think of Acts 2 as being kind of a keynote speech where he addresses the essential stuff. And then here, Peter is developing his argument further. And he's particularly looking to things like the future of this, and this amazing plan that God has to restore everything. And he's also very careful to fully attribute the power by which the healing took place to the person of, of Jesus Christ. And as with the first speech, Peter calls the audience to repentance, which is that, that turning around of our lives, that switching around to a new way of doing things that we, we discussed last week. It is interesting to note that the call to repentance is addressed to the people in the temple, not the guy who was outside the temple being healed. I mean, he was there, but maybe there's something in that. Because while they were going about their religious activities within the walls of their temple, 
a fellow one of God's creations lay outside, alone and unnoticed. And immediately following this, this mention of God's planned restoration of all things and a call to repentance, Peter suggests that those who heed this call could experience what he calls times of refreshing. And this is fairly common with the way that these things were written because usually after repentance or turning towards God, you'd have some kind of a blessing added on to that. But times of refreshing, what is that? What does it mean? I mean, usually we think of something in the way of refreshment is in maybe um, refreshment will be served in the drawing room. <laughs> or we think of a refreshing swim, a refreshing drink. A certain soft drink company coined the phrase, the pause that refreshes, which I totally didn't plagiarize earlier. <laughs> and people who want to sound spiritual talk of having had a time of refreshing when they really mean they went for a holiday. But in context of this passage, Peter has just been alluding to this grand scheme of God to restore all the world, all things, into a state of goodness and community. Where the things that cause hurt and suffering and isolation, like the man's condition, but perhaps also societal systems that ensure a life of limitation and isolation for anybody who has thus afflicted, all of this will be put right. And so in that context, these times of refreshing can be seen to refer to little moments where this restored world, what we sometimes refer to as the kingdom of heaven, starts to be seen in the here and now. As though in the midst of, an, of imperfect cultures and systems, there are these little pockets or islands where there is a sense of that promised restoration happening now. It's like a window looking into what the kingdom could be like. And this is more than just a story about a healing. I mean, I'm not going to get into the whole question of whether healing happens now or not. That's not the point. The thing is, the healing is great, especially for the guy that received it. But it's really a, it's a vehicle. It's a means to tell us something really important. Because ultimately it's about Restoration and reconnection into relationship and community. Restoration of the ones on the outside, the outcasts, the, the not good enoughs. But it's also a restoration of those on the inside to a greater sense of compassion and inclusiveness. Because we can only include others in the community when those already in the community are ready and willing to want that to happen. And it was an open community in a church I visited when I was 18 that made me welcome and accepted me as one of their own. See, I was the guy with the physical condition. You know, I moved and, and walked a bit strangely and I, I, I tripped from time to time. And previous experiences, especially at school, had left me quite seriously socially anxious. And yet, there I was accepted. There, I found a place to belong. And the fact that you see me here now doing this is due in no small part 
to the people of that community, some of whom are, are still here now, and their choice to be a window into what a restored world could look like. Now, now here's a thought. It's, it's a little different, but I don't think it's too much of a trend. Let's, let's go a bit bigger, shall we? Let's think about the term refresh in computer terms. Like clicking the refresh button on a web page. You know, maybe you're following an online auction and you, you keep refreshing it because you want to see what's happening next. Or, or maybe you've got a download that freezes and you, you click refresh to start it. Or maybe you've just posted a really cool picture on Instagram and you keep refreshing it to see if there's more likes coming in. <laughs> Who hasn't done that? Come on. The thing is, when you do that, it doesn't just redraw the page. It actually goes back to the source and re-downloads it. It re-downloads that information and you. It isn't just incrementally adding to it. It's completely reloading it. And it's the updated information that you're getting brought back to your page. And maybe if that's, maybe that's how we can look at this idea of times of refreshment. A time of complete renewing. Complete rewriting, re-downloading the way things are done, the way life is experienced. It's about not putting up with a system, where existing systems where injustices are just part of how it is, but a do-over. A restructuring of the system from the inside, something new, something bigger. We are refreshed. We refresh others. And collectively, we hit refresh on society itself. Think back to what Luke, the same guy that wrote Acts, said in, in chapter 4 of his gospel. When Jesus spoke his inaugural teaching, this is at his local synagogue, he's fresh back from the desert experience of being tempted. And this is where he first identifies who he is and what he came to do. And how does he describe it? He took the prophetic words of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Good news to the poor. Freedom for those who are imprisoned, release of the oppressed. Not just about guaranteeing the righteous a place in heaven, not just that those with the biggest wallets clearly have God's favor, but this is about restoration of all, not just those who are on the inside. This is so radical precisely because it turns everything on its head. It's because those who are on the outside, those who suffer, even those who have been imprisoned in a body that doesn't work as it's supposed to, the untouchable ones, the other. It is they, that one unhappily lost sheep out of the hundred, who were sought out, lifted up, and lovingly restored to relationship. This is refreshment. It is a witness of and a witness to something that refreshes, something that turns things around and resets the values so that there is a restoration of all who are on the outside and a dissolving of the barriers that kept them there. Now that is a witness that refreshes. So I'll leave you with two questions. Firstly, 
Who, who is our lame man? You know, we may not be able to promise a miracle, but we can still bring healing in so many other ways to all of those who for whatever reason are, are isolated and conform, confined to small worlds. Maybe it's those who struggle with anxiety or depression. Maybe it's those of different economical status. Maybe it's those of, who are immigrants or disabled, people of different cultures or ethnic backgrounds. Or, or let's get a bit more radical. Who are our outsiders? Would that be people with a different spirituality? People with a different sexual orientation? People whose moral compass doesn't quite point exactly the way ours does? I mean, in Jesus' time, the outsiders were prostitutes and tax collectors. Who are ours? Because we're never going to engage in dialogue. Nobody is going to be changed or healed or restored by being told they are other and they must stay on the outside. They can't come in. And the other question is, am I the lame man? She doesn't have to be because of a disability. Any situation where we feel we have no agency, or where repeated failure threatens to become a pattern that we follow, maybe you feel like one of those dogs in the experiment where it seems like the universe is just giving you crap, and it feels like you are being pounded on with no way to avoid or change it. We could all be the lame guy at some point in our lives. Hey, even now, I still have days when my world feels smaller, where I can lose hope just for a bit, where I start to identify as my situation rather than who I can be. And yet I feel God challenging me to think bigger, live bigger. And it's in loving and supportive community that this can happen. And hey, if you've got any questions around those two questions, any thoughts on those questions, do you want to talk to everyone? There'll be people here tonight who you can come up to and talk to and pray with. Let me just pray you out to the end. Dear God, you are for the outsider, the lame of the world, the one sheep in a hundred. Forgive us when we choose exclusivity over inclusion, indifference, over compassion. For those who are hurt, who feel excluded, who wrestle with helplessness, you yearn to pull them close, to expand their world, to call them seen, loved, to call them to walk again.